Ezekiel chapter 43, I titled the sermon, Glory and Blood. I titled it reluctantly because Glory and Blood sounds like a um, Civil War documentary. But I titled it Glory and Blood because that's what we have in Ezekiel chapter 43. The first half is about the glory of the Lord returning to the temple. And the second half is about the altar of the Lord. Rather than a Civil War reenactment or Civil War documentary, though, I think that we should see how Ezekiel chapter 43 is a complete picture of salvation. There is the glory of the Lord, and the response to the glory of the Lord is not self-satisfaction, but self debasement, a recognition of the sin that is unacceptable to the glory of the Lord. And a recognition of the sin brings shame and awareness that it's not somebody else who's done the wrong, but me. And finally, and I, when Paul read the passage aloud, you'll notice that he slowed down appropriately enough at the end of verse 27, because the hope for salvation is to hear the Lord say, I will accept you. You have defiled yourself and are ashamed, but I will accept you through the blood. So you have an outline up here. We're going to consider Ezekiel chapter 43 under four headings. First, the sight of his glory, that's in verses 1 to 5. Second, the sin that defiles in verses 6 to 9. Third, the shame for iniquities, that's in 10 to 12. That's all in response to the glory. And then finally, in verses 13 all the way to verse 27, the sacrifice for acceptance. So sight of his glory, sin that defiles shame for iniquities and sacrifice for acceptance. Well, first, let's think about the first five verses, the sight of his glory. Ezekiel, you'll remember chapters 40, 40 41, and 42. He, the bronze man with the extremely yard, large yardstick and the measuring tape measures the entire temple complex, this structure that looks like a city. And now... He is led out through the east gate and verse two, behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. He sees the glory of God coming. And also he hears the glory of God coming. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. So just as in Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 4, when he is told to look and to hear, now in Ezekiel chapter 43, Ezekiel looks and sees the glory of God and listens with his ears and hears this mighty roar of the glory of God coming. And then you see the earth shone with his glory a majestic and overwhelming sight. I love to give illustrations in my sermons, but I could find no illustration for this. Uh, it seemed blasphemous to try to 
to, to, to offer up a comparison. The closest thing I can come to, though, would be a, a humongous hurricane or a terrifying tornado, something that in the distance is so powerful, it's awesome. It, it's really spectacular. And yet it is also terrifying. Now, he'd seen this vision before, as he details in uh, verse 3. The vision I saw was just like the vision that I'd seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I'd seen by the Chabar Canal. But familiarity with the vision of the glory of the Lord does not make Ezekiel easygoing about it. On the contrary, yet again, he falls on his face. In fact, Ezekiel falls on his face four times in the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 1, chapter 3, here in chapter 43, and again in chapter 44. And each time he does so before the glory of the Lord. God's glory is brilliant, it's loud, and it's terrifying. God's glory is so magnificent that even the angels in heaven cover themselves with their wings. Perfect beings are in awe at the presence of the glory of the Lord. So Ezekiel, he falls on his face, the earth shone with the glory of the Lord. So the first question that we have here, the sight of his glory, is do you have a similar response? Maybe not falling on your face, but do you have a reverence for the things of God? Do you participate in worship nonchalantly, haphazardly, or do you see the work that we're doing here? With the, you do it with reverence and awe. When you read the Bible and when you pray, do you sense the great privilege that you have that you can boldly approach the throne of such a majestic and great God? We should be respectful of the worship of the Lord. So that's the sight of his glory in the first five verses. Now let's consider the sin that defiles. The sin that defiles is in verses six to nine. Ezekiel hears a voice and he makes it clear to us, his readers, that the voice is not the bronze measuring man he's followed around for several chapters. In verse six, he says, while the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And this voice, the voice of the Lord, describes a promise, but also a complaint. A promise, but also a complaint. The day will come, the Lord says, when the people will not defile his name with their wickedness. That's a promise. But it's all, and we see this in verses um, 7 and 8. But that doesn't mean that they've reached the point in which they never defile his name with their wickedness. And we get a, a um, abbreviated laundry list 
of the Lord's complaints against his people. If you um, look at verse 7, he said, This is the place where I, where I will dwell in the midst of my people, and they shall no more defile my name. So this is a, a promised ex- expectation. But then what have they done historically? Well, by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places. Verse 8 by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts before my doorposts. So there are two kinds of complaints here. The first is about their, their unfaithfulness and their wickedness. They're, they're, they're following after other gods. If you want um, an ancient example of the, the worship of dead kings, part, you know, playing a role in the life of a people, you need go no further than ancient Egypt. Right. You have this massive amount of money that is spent enshrining these pharaohs. So that would be familiar to the Lord's people. And it seems as though this is a practice that God's people wickedly participated in. I was reminded just before the service that it's not a um, as best I know, it's not open to the public. But if you go to Westminster Abbey. There is a place where some of the uh, kings of England are buried. And I think it's Henry V who has this massive mausoleum. And there are pillars, and then there's a crossbar, and in the crossbar is where he's buried. But of course, what do two pillars with a line across it, what, what does that look like? A capital H. H is for Henry. (laughs) So uh, the practice presumably continues very sadly. Now, Christians and Jews, notice the concern here is that they do this wickedness and the Lord says they've defiled my name. Christians and Jews have a reverence for the Lord's name that we don't find in other religions. And the, the reverence for God's own name comes from the Lord himself. Remember the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And the shorter catechism says that the third commandment forbiddeth all profaning or abusing of anything whereby God maketh himself known. And we see that in play here, right? They they are saying that they are doing some kind of worship, but using their dead kings. And in verse 8, They defile the name of the Lord by blending the sacred and the profane. What's going on here is you've got the temple and the Lord is saying your king's house of revelry shares a wall with my temple. It's as though Covenant Church Fayetteville, instead of when you go out that exit door, instead of uh, going out into the parking lot, If we built a brothel there and we said, this is how we're going to honor the Lord. It is absolutely disgusting. And the result, as we know, is that the Lord consumed the temple and Jerusalem in his anger. And he calls them away from such vile wickedness with the eager expectation, verse 8, that he will dwell in their midst forever. There is a complaint But there is also a promise, 
a promise of hope. Now, we need to recognize that sin defiles us too. Mike Rowe was the host of the series Dirty Jobs, and he spent much time exploring seriously unappealing work. Snake researcher, cow inseminator, concrete chipper, and shark suit tester all make his list of the worst of the bad jobs. Shark suit tester, he actually says the only way that you test really whether the shark suit works is you put on the shark suit and then they throw you in with all of the sharks in a frenzy. And he said, it wasn't the most disgusting job that I did, but it was the most terrifying. I will never do it again. So what's the top of the list though? Sewer inspector, quote, aside from sloshing through a relentless chocolate tide, inspectors encounter a myriad of man-made projects, products that shouldn't be flushed down toilets, along with roaches the size of thumbs and rats the size of bread loaves. It's hot, dirty, and too smelly to describe. Your sin stinks to high heaven, and there is no chemical agent to get rid of that smell. You have been swimming in the chocolate tide of your own wickedness, in the cesspool of your unrighteousness. And you think that you have fooled the Lord, but you haven't. You may have fooled us, but God sees all things. We must inspect our hearts. We must look at what flows out of our mouths. And we should repent of the sin that defiles. It doesn't just defile us. It defiles his holy name. How we live, how we think, what we say can bring dishonor to the Lord Jesus. May that not be the case. May may what we think, say, and do bring glory to Christ. All right. So the sight of his glory, the sin that defiles, and third, the shame for iniquities. This is in verses 10 to 12. Verses 10 to 12 illuminate further why the Lord has Ezekiel offer such a detailed account of the temple. This is really striking. Verse 10, as for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. The meticulous details that we looked at this morning in chapters 40, 41, and 42 contrast that the Lord's concern for the exact measurements, making sure everything is right, contrast powerfully with his people's indifference, callous neglect, and outright wicked disregard for his holy law. The details matter, but God's people have ignored them. God requires that they worship him in one way only, but they've decided that he should take what they can give him. And shame for their iniquities has its own use. 
Shame for their iniquities becomes a gateway for new knowledge. Look at verse 11. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and make known to them as well as its statutes and the whole design and law. Write it down in their sight, he tells Ezekiel, so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. Then the Lord, the Lord actually says twice in a single verse in verse 12, this is the law of the temple. God wants to see whether or not his people will be ashamed, verse 10. But most importantly, verse 11, ashamed for what they have done. A uh, George Mason researcher, June Tangney, and her colleagues authored a 2014 study of 476 inmates and discovered that those who felt shame but took responsibility for their actions, they blamed themselves, were less likely to, be, to, to repeat that crime in the future compared to those who felt shame but blamed their shame on somebody else. God wants the wicked to feel shame for what they have done. If they are shamed for what they have done, Then the Lord says, verse 11, make known to them the design of the temple. What? I'm ashamed and God is going to give me a description of a temple? What's going on there? Well, yes, because in giving you the design of the temple, God is going to teach you how to get rid of your shame. You bring your shame, but you can't get rid of it on your, by yourself. That's why you need, verses 13 to 27, the sacrifice for acceptance, the glory and the blood. Verses 13 to 17 in the sacrifice for acceptance just set the stage quite literally. They give you measurements for the altar. And verses 18 to 27 offer the ordinances of the altar, that is what the Lord requires of a sacrifice that can make people acceptable. The right priests must be chosen. That's verse 19. The altar itself must be purified, verses 20 to 22. And then offerings must be made. Verse 23, a bull without blemish, a ram without blemish, and they shall be presented to the Lord. Notice the without blemish. In Malachi, the Lord gets really angry with the priest because he says, you bring me all the junk from your herd that you just want to get rid of. But no, God requires pure, clean, perfect sacrifices without blemish. Now, lest you think that, all right, The work is done. Verse 25 makes clear that you then need a daily sin offering of a male goat, a bull without blemish, and a ram without blemish, and it needs to be offered for seven days. So we haven't, this is preparatory work, people. This is merely preparatory work. We haven't got the sacrifice for acceptance yet. This is just building the altar, making, getting all the measurements, Purification, purification, purification. 
And then verse 26, seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and cleanse it and so consecrate it. And only then do we arrive at verse 27. And when they have completed these days, then from the eighth day onward, the priest shall offer on the altar your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord God. Now, don't let these words wash over you. They are the key phrase of Ezekiel chapter 43. I will accept you, declares the Lord God. I will accept you. You are ashamed. You are defiled by your sin, but I will accept you, declares the Lord God. The measurements, the blood, all the sacrifices point to this great declaration. You know, people don't like blood. Some people are scared of blood. They pass out at the sight of blood, but people don't like blood. People don't like blood in theology either. I um, had the privilege when I was studying theology of studying the Greek of Romans with Henry Wandsborough, who was the general editor of the New Jerusalem Bible, which is a major Catholic translation of the Bible. And so we, I mean, his Greek was better than mine, obviously, but... uh, I was keen on what the Apostle Paul actually was saying. And so at one point, uh, in, I would translate and then he would comment and then I would comment. But at one point he said, I just don't like the blood. And I said, but I'm not putting it in there, right? I'm not, I'm not writing into the Bible the blood. I'm making sense of the blood, And the best commentary I think of for the book of Ezekiel is actually the New Testament book of Hebrews. Because when when the Lord Jesus says in John chapter 19, it is finished, it is finished, this is the kind of climax of his atoning work, dying on the cross, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, The book of Hebrews reminds us that the life of Jesus was one life of perfect obedience with a set purpose. All he entered, this is Hebrews chapter 9, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The eighth day for Jesus is not just one more sacrifice. On the contrary, the eighth day for Jesus is heavenly rest because he did it all and he died once. The sacrifices here in Ezekiel chapter 43 serve as a continual reminder of our need to be made right with God. But they also remind us that the blood, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. As he, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
So it's not the blood of bulls and goats that we plead before the holy God, the one true God, but the blood of Jesus. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Do you trust in the blood that makes you clean? Do you tremble before the glory that exposes your sin and weakness? If you do, if you, if you do, then receive and rest and the forgiveness that is yours and also joyfully obey all his statutes and his laws. The, the temple is at the end of history, but it's also not at the end of history. And here's what I mean by that. In the book of Revelation, you have the temple and you don't have the temple. You have the temple in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. This temple is full of glory and splendor and loud noise. But ultimately, at the end of everything, there will be no temple. Revelation 21, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. How can the temple be important, but not ultimate? The temple is needed for the one true sacrifice for sin. But when the sacrifices have been completed and the Lord is with his temple and the Lord is with his people, there'll be no need for a temple because the sacrifices have ended. As G.K. Beale writes, Christ's great sacrifice is the ultimate fulfillment of Ezekiel's temple vision. So trust in Jesus. Look back to the cross, to the sacrifice that he made for you. And look ahead to heaven, the glorious place that he's preparing for you and for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would rest and hope and find joy and peace in the Lord Jesus. Lord, if there is anyone who does not know you, we pray that that person would trust in Christ and would hear you say, I will accept you. You have spoken true words to us in your word. You are faithful, good, and true. May we rest in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.